Hello and welcome to this, the 36th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week, we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised you that we won't ever charge for this podcast, but we are looking for you to put your money into Irish theatre. Put your money where your mouth is. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And the simplest way for you to go and support is to put your hand in your pocket and go and buy yourself some tickets. There's a whole heap of theatre coming up over the next little while. Get get your hands in your pockets, dig deep, buy yourself some tickets, get out there and support the troops. But you know what? If tickets are maybe outside your reach this week or this month, go and check out one of the crowdsourcing websites, the fundit.ies, the Indiegogos of the world. Go and see if there's a theatre project over there that you might like to support. Donations often start from as low as a fiver, and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. But indeed, there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast whether that's in person, over a cup of coffee or over a pint, uh, by sharing the link as a Facebook post or by retweeting the link on Twitter or Instagram or any other social media platform you like. The more you can get the word out about this podcast, the more we can use this podcast to get the word out about all the great talent in Irish theatre. Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes if you're an Apple user. But of course, they are streamable and available for direct download at riseproductions.ie for all you Android folk out there. Do go back and listen to our other episodes, both in this second series and indeed in the original series the first series from a few years back there's an awful lot of great uh, quality content back there Um, leave us a review on iTunes if you would it's a massive help to us if you can do that or indeed you can simply click to rate us on their five star rating system all those ratings all those reviews do a massive amount to bump us up in search algorithms and chart positions and all that great stuff that again helps us get the word out and promote these shows and these artists and of course as ever you can follow us on Facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at rise ireland and so it has been another busy week here at rise towers we have kicked off our run at smock alley theater in uh, temple bar uh, right on the keys and it is wonderful to be back in the city center i mean for all the touring that we've done in this show and we've been on the road since last october um we've yet to play a city center venue so it's nice to get back into the heart of dublin city uh, and to be taking christian's great show out there in front of audiences again and thankfully the audiences have been showing up i mean with that good weather and with the world cup and stuff it's a difficult thing to shift theater tickets at the moment Oh my guys, I'm not going to lie to you. But uh, thankfully, the word on this show is out there. People know that uh, that people are having a really great time with it. So thankfully, we are getting the support. But do please continue to come out and support us. If you haven't seen the show yet, you have your last couple of chances. We have a show tonight, Friday, a matinee and a night show tomorrow, Saturday. We have Sunday off. And then we will have our final performance on Monday evening in Smock Alley. And I think there'll be some exciting announcements about that that I might reveal towards the end of the podcast. Uh, so look, talking about announcements and stuff, it's an exciting week this is the week that we launched the Fringe Festival for this year and so our guest this week is none other than Ruth McGowan who is head of the Fringe now haven't been there for a while she's now taken over she is the boss she has picked up the baton from the wonderful Chris Nelson and is now putting her own stamp on the festival and Ruth is a brilliant woman who I know from going back a good few years back at my time at the Abbey uh, and just an all-round awesome person so look let's get straight into it here she is 
the brilliant Ruth McGowan. The wonderful Ruth McGowan. How the hell are you? I'm very well. How's it going? I'm doing very well. I'm delighted to have you on. Um, Exciting times. Uh, But let's wait and hold off on the exciting times for the moment. And let's start as we always do. Let's go back to the very beginning. When was the first inkling for you that a career around theatre and in theatre might be for you? Um, Love of theatre, like forever, like as early as I can remember. So the thinking about it as a job part came a lot later. Right. But like I grew up in a house where all of my siblings were really involved in like amateur drama. So some of my earliest memories are of like running lines of my mum like uh, cutting, like unrolling big rolls of leather across the sitting room floor to cut out like 20 pairs of chaps Excellent. for the local production of Oklahoma. What your mother does with her weekends is <laughs> um, So yeah, mum making costumes, everyone being involved. Um, in the Ballard Theatre, in the yeah. Ballet Buffet. And so it always seemed like a really normal thing to do. Okay. <laughs> so um, that, so always loved theatre, always was like drawn to like circus and any kind of performance, just wanted to be brought there all the time, parades, like anything performance related. But the part of it being a job came a lot later because okay. I didn't know anyone who did that for a living. Like sure. I didn't know that was a job that you could have. So in your mind, this is something that's great for community engagement, big groups and everybody coming together, but as maybe then as a, as a way of paying the bills, it's a separate thing. Exactly, I just, um, I knew obviously some great Donegal actors. Of course. Um, so Frankie McCafferty and Frank Laverty, both from the Twin Towns where I'm from, um, but didn't know anyone who like actually worked in the theater full time, okay. you know, apart from them who were like, stars yeah, you know okay. um and so it actually wasn't until i did my masters so i was like 21 and i did my masters in uh trinity in theater and performance and at that point i we had a class called irish theater in context and every week we met someone who actually oh, wow, did okay. it as a job so we met like all of these people who were working in theaters all the time and that was the first moment that it occurred to me like oh this could be a full-time thing. And what was the the decision to go and, and chase the masters then? Was that with a view to seeing if there was an like an avenue into the business or, or finding another way around? What was the what was the motivation behind jumping in there? Um, I think that I think there was like a weird homing signal okay. somehow. It does happen though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Where so at the time I felt like it was just about pursuing a passion. I hadn't done a degree in drama because I was like getting a proper job. The correct way to go. Um, And so, but I had kind of promised myself when I was doing my degree and was spending all of my time with the drama sock instead of going to lectures, (laughs) um, I kind of promised myself that I I would take the time and go back and explore it. Um, So I did that. So I went back and did that. And at that point it became, it just started looking viable. Like it started looking like a thing that I could do. And it's also the point where I learned like the word dramaturg and what that was um, and realized that I was good at that. And so that was kind of the beginning of thinking about it as a full-time gig. Are there any of the people who came into you that stand out to this day as going, that was a real kind of light bulb moment or was it the combination of all these different voices going here, this is a a, a viable option? Um, It was a combination of all the different voices, but uh, Melissa Sierra's class in particular. There you go. Yeah. Uh, she, I think, is someone who has had a massive and profound impact on a whole swathe of people currently working in the business. Huge, huge. Yeah, she's terrific. It was just, um, I guess, 
shedding light on the canon, mm-hmm. like kind of showed me a whole side to Irish theatre that I didn't know about, yeah. particularly in relation to women's voices. So that was really important. And then, as I say, the, the Irish Theatre in Context class, which is where we met all these people who were doing it full time, that was Chrissy Poulter's class. Yeah. Um, and we were going to the theatre once a week during that. And that was also really formative because you start to understand the topography yeah. And you start to understand all the different ways of telling stories and all of those things. So for you, Masters gets done. What was the next step? So after my Masters, I was still, uh, so I was still teaching full time. Okay. And, uh, but what I was doing was kind of working on individual shows. So okay. like producing and dramaturging and directing pieces of new writing, like above pubs and in comedy festivals and different things like that. But I really, really quickly realized that like as a kind of lone dramaturg out there in the world, that, that it just, it, I felt that there wasn't enough. Like a good year would be three projects. Of course. Um, and I felt that that wasn't enough. And I thought if I was within a bigger organization, mm-hmm. could I connect with a lot more projects? Could I help a lot more people? And I thought, how am I going to do that? And so there wasn't, there didn't feel to me like a lot of internship opportunities. Like it seemed like a huge experience gap to bridge. Yeah, okay. And I had always, always, always wanted to live in New York. So I took my, so I applied for an internship at Atlantic Theatre Company in New York in their literary department. And I took myself off to New York for a year and I interned over there for a year. So I was at Atlantic for six months and then I was in the public for six months. And it was kind of to try it on, yeah. to be honest. Like it was to see, like, is uh, like is that work really creative? Mm-hmm. Does that really feel like art making? Yeah. You know. Okay. And so, like, two days in in Atlantic, when I was sitting with a pile of scripts in front of me and like being assigned to go see a different show every evening, yeah. I was like, "This is a job." <laughs> and I'm in New York. <laughs> yeah, completely. And it was just, it was just the right fit. Like it yeah. was instantly like. This is what I thought it was going to be. It's actually more than I thought it was going to there be. It's go. really creative. I feel really invested. And I feel like I'm actually making a difference. There is something in that gut instinct or the hunch or that homing signal that you talk about that I think somehow, even for people who... Obviously, I grew up around the business and that's fine. But there's a whole lot of people out there who didn't at mm-hmm. all. And yet, there is some kind of... I mean, whether it's a vocation, whether it's a calling from God, whether whatever it is. But I think... There is a sense of that, and as you say, when you when you then access it, you go, ah, this feels right. This feels like home. Yeah, and it's just, um, I guess it was the, it was just such a revelation mm. that, like, to you know, to walk into a theatre office, like I walked into Atlantic and realised, oh my god, there's a whole floor of people, and all of these people do this all the time, yeah. and you just simply don't know that as an audience member. You know, you don't really understand unless, like, you you see the people on stage. Yeah, that's one thing, but actually understanding that it does take a village and that there's whole communities of people um, that make up Atlantic Theatre Company as well as mm. the shows that end up on the stage. What were the moments of magic for you in New York? I presume it was, like, was it just living the dream? You're in New York, you're seeing shows all the time. Oh, like, completely spoiled. I think about it now, and like the amount of work that I got to see, yeah. like the amount of shows that I got to see, you know, there'd be weeks where you're seeing like three Broadway shows a week. When I was working in the pub, like, like Joe's Pub has two shows a night every night. Okay. Um, and, you know, that, that time was actually definitely sowing the seeds of that would eventually bring me to Fringe. Yeah. Because I was working in the literary department at the public, but my desk was in the Joe's Pub office. Okay. So I was with that gang being introduced to all of the like underground music scene and to cabaret and to comedy and understanding that like 
Um, but the thing about New York is like on any given night, there's like hundreds of things you could be seeing. Yeah. So yes, I mean, I was like doing unpaid internships full time. So I was working, I was like waiting tables right. every night and all weekend as well. So I was like working around the clock, didn't sleep, but like classic New York story, like all I can remember is what a good time I had. <laughs> you know, I re- it I was such that. an incredible experience. Were there surprises there as in being exposed to new forms or new styles of work or suddenly realizing that you were massively into hip-hop freestyle rap battles or, or, or what was there, were there any things that kind of surprised you about the time there a hundred percent like particularly so because I like I read so much yeah. because I was in literary department internships I was just reading so much and the exposure to like voices that really defy the mainstream and like making you realize how homogenous that like voices in Irish theater had been for a really long time. Yep. Um, So that was a huge eye opener. And then once you start discovering, like I would read plays and go, I have like, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about that issue. Mm. I have, this is a window into an experience that I never could have imagined. And it's so authentic and it's so, um, enlightening that actually you would just get so hungry for that Mm. like you really quickly your tastes change because you just start looking for like well tell me something i don't know that's what i want you know and so that that was a big part of it like amazing amazing playwrights like uh dominique morisseau um like terrell mccraney like um stephen adley gurgis like uh kind of that whole american canon yeah totally opened up for me that, see, that's the fascinating thing for me. I think it's one of my biggest regrets around the kind of funding cuts that have happened here over the last 10 years or so, is that because we've had to ramp back as much as we have and kind of protect what we have, it feels like that, that old channel of work coming in, both from the UK and from America, kind of, you know, the, the other two big centres of English language drama, that we haven't had a chance to see that work. And so that it means that Irish writers don't get exposed to those mm-hmm. new styles of writing. Irish directors don't get to tackle those plays. And Irish actors and performers don't get to tackle those roles. Um, and I think, I think it's something that we are, we're, we're missing here at the moment. Mm-hmm. And for audiences too. For audiences too, because that's like the New York experience is like a different type of show and a different type of venue every night, which is constantly challenging your perceptions of what art can be, which actually is really important for artists because what you're doing is you're making sure that your audience know that they can take a risk and it's fine, even if they hate it. (laughs) They get to go home at the end of the two hours. Yeah, you don't have to stay there. (laughs) Yeah, and so it's kind of, it's a framework for risk because audiences are much more savvy and much more open and much more willing to take a punt when they don't know what they're in for. That's actually, I think that's that's, uh, something that people enjoy and that is encouraging. And if you develop that appetite for lots of different things, it makes a really welcoming environment for new work, which I don't think we necessarily have. Okay, so... After having this kind of formative experience in the States, what was the decision then to come back? Was it simply a case of, I've gone for the year, and obviously you can't do unpaid internships forever. Uh, so was was that the motivating factor in coming back and going, okay, I've seen what else is out there, now let's take that lesson and bring it home and see what you do with it from there? Visa ran out. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was there on a one-year graduate okay. visa. Um, and so came home and was, uh, and at that point, was like, okay, I've really got to, at that point was convinced that I wanted to do it full time. Didn't know if that would actually happen, but was convinced that that was 
a plan that that's what I would like to do. Um, and you talked a bit about it being, you know, the question of would this be creatively fulfilling for me? Mm. I mean, and having done directing and producing before that, having had that experience, that you were then sure in your mind, yeah, I can get exactly what I need from this. This is this is how I want to shape the work, basically. Yes, I mean my. Uh, my career in literary departments is has been really really rewarding like working at fringe is a different thing and like the job that I have now is a different thing um but I think that like I mean for all of us in my generation we're all going to have three careers that's kind of the accepted wisdom is that you know that you'll have many strings to your bow and that there'll be kind of different chapters of your career but certainly at that time that felt really rewarding and really like just incredibly symbiotic you know that I was getting so I was getting so much out of it but I felt that within a bigger organization the reach of kind of people I was able to impact and support was much broader than I could as a freelance artist by myself okay so then what were the steps having come back and how quickly does the Abbey come on board um so there was about so I sent my CV everywhere like everywhere I was applying for jobs left right and center um and I was like nursing a massive like New York sized credit card bill um, in my mother's back bedroom um, <laughs> see this is the glamour of show business oh, this, totally. is the, this is the peak behind the curtain people don't often get to totally. see totally so there was like months months where I didn't know what was going to happen yeah. and uh, so I was like back substitute teaching yeah. and trying to figure out what the next step was and then so it was about six months later um, that I went in to work at the Abbey um, on a part-time basis as like kind of covering some summer leave okay. for three months um, and at the end of that three-month period the literary assistant job opened up literally on my last day um, <laughs> of my placement um, and so I applied for that job and I got that job so I started there full-time um, I had gotten back from I had come back from New York in the, at the end of December and I started full-time in the Abbey that September wow that's kind of a fantastic turnaround. Going into an organisation like the Abbey, for all its brilliance, which I will always sing, and you know it has its issues as well, particularly having come from uh, the excitement of New York, did it feel at the time that the Abbey was still a bit conservative in its approach to work, or did you feel that there was scope to get in there and do exciting things as well? For sure. I mean, my role was supporting, so I was working with, like, supporting the new Playwrights Programme and um, all of those brilliant writers. I was uh, developing, so I was kind of supporting all of the work and development, so all of the commissions. Um, So that was always this undercurrent, you know, so you may not have seen it on the stage, but there was always, for me, there was, like, every week there was a new project that was um, really exciting and, like, uh, really exciting pieces of casting going on, particularly at the time where the way um, the way that Irish theatre makers were developing work was changing. Yeah. And so the commissioning model was changing around that. So that was really exciting. Um, but also just I couldn't believe my luck because really the Abbey job felt like that wasn't an internship. Yeah. Like someone was paying me to be there. So that actually felt like the first time that it really felt like this might actually work. Yeah. You know, because before then I was never sure if it was going to happen and when the Abbey job happened I was like okay well this is like real and this could be the beginning of something and also you're just surrounded by such extraordinary artistry like that is the gift of working in that building is that I'm a total romantic so like the idea to me of like an artist having a relationship with the theatre across a whole working lifetime 
is extraordinary and it doesn't happen in a lot of places and the lovely thing about a national theatre is that it's not going anywhere so that people can have those lifelong relationships so in the literary department when you got to see like when you were getting for like a mega nerd like me when you're getting like handwritten drafts of the new Tom Murphy play like you know and the Sam Shepard is faxing things to the office (laughs) and it was just like it was extraordinary it was and to be around that like to be around people who are such extraordinary thinkers like Freel and Murphy and Sam like all of them it's very sad but like we'll never see their like again you know how special a time was that and how magical if you can describe it is it to be there as the as the pieces come together with someone like a Tom Murphy, to see that thing start to assemble, to be part of that process kind of alongside him, you know, for people like us, is dream territory. Absolutely. Like, just um, totally life-changing, actually. Mm. Like, with Tom, watching that kind of rigour, the rigour that he had, um, was just really eye-opening and would steal you for any process you would ever do again. Because when you, you know when people talk about like how do you get that good, it's like you work that, that hard. hard. You're yeah. that tough on yourself. And like many people who've worked in the Abbey have had the privilege of working alongside Tom. But Tom would hand write drafts and would bring it into the literary department and would sit beside me and I would type it. So you were getting to see him go um, an ellipsis. No, no ellipsis. Right. a comma no wait it's a semicolon you know and that precision was really really special but actually what I one thing that I loved the most about it was how generous they all were with the emerging writers really? and the way that they exchanged with the new playwrights program when they would do workshops with them like those are like wisdoms that I carry and that I pass on all of the time um, like I remember when we did the first scratch night in yes. the Peacock um we said it'd be really lovely because again like this is a scratch night at the abbey it's not a scratch night somewhere else so it's got to feel like the abbey so how do you do that mm-hmm. and you know a big part of that is about the exchange of the fact that there are very senior artists and very like someone's first play could be on and someone's um 18th play mm-hmm. 18th play <laughs> you know that's a big deal that doesn't happen yeah. doesn't happen to a lot of playwrights so that they could both be on at the same time and so uh i said we'll ask sam for the crack and see what he says. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. And uh, and Aideen Howard asked him, and Sam came back, and he said, what is Scratch? <laughs> and then we told him what it was, um, and he sent us pages. He sent us pages from what he was working on that were read at the Scratch Night, along with work by lots of emerging writers. And that sort of thing is just... Um, it's lovely that that kind of family tree or like heritage can yeah. function even among writers who don't know each other and who aren't necessarily connected to the younger writers well i guess that's the thing because for me primarily as an actor you get to be in those rehearsal rooms with those senior performers you get to watch how owen Rowe refines and refines a laugh or how someone like anita reeves works it and works it and you oh that's what they're doing or even if you can't get it you've the sense to go up to them after us and go Right, what are you doing there? Or why am I getting the laugh sometimes on this and not getting the laugh on others? But presumably you would expect that the experience for writers is, you know, alone at your dusty typewriter in, in your room. Mm-hmm. So to then, for that kind of exchange, as you say, exchange of wisdom, exchange of ideas, to have a conversation with someone who has achieved so much must be invaluable for young writers coming through. Absolutely. And we did a series as well while I was there called uh, Watch Me Work. And so um, what we did was we brought... Uh, we kind of just 
opened up the Peacock Cafe and invited some writers to come in and do their morning's work. Sorry, we called it Write With Me. And that they um, and it was totally 100% inspired by Susan Laurie Parks, right. who does watch me work in the foyer of the public. Okay. And it's that idea that you can watch someone, you can come in and do your morning's work alongside Owen McCafferty or alongside Gary and Phelan from Broken Talkers. And it's just demystifying yes. that... Um, you know, uh, kind of writer in their country pile, uh, <laughs> running around the lake, gathering inspiration and like purging it all out onto the page in one yeah. go and to show that it is actually work. And sometimes you do have to get up and like make four cups of tea and eat eight custard creams before you put a word on the page. And that's all part of it. It's Aaron Monaghan talks about how much he loves that the, that it's, you know, you are a playwright and that it is, it is wrought. It is mm-hmm. like kind of hold kicking and screaming from the subconscious sometimes right and then and, and to try and work it in there that, that it's that it does involve as you say that that level of rigor mm-hmm. if you want it to count if you want it to to matter if you want it to get to where it needs to be that it is hard hell work mm-hmm. and brian delaney who was the new playwrights program manager who i shared enough had the absolute gift and pleasure of sharing an office with brian for years brian used to always say that like as a playwright you've got to hold 500 imaginations at the same time. There you go. You know, that it's not like, uh, you know, with a novel, you're holding one person. But actually, the reason why plays have to be so architecturally structured um, is because they've got to be enough to sustain that many minds and imaginations. Yeah. And um, I guess you don't know what people are bringing into the room with them. So you've got to have something bulletproof if it's going to be enough to sustain all of those people at the same time. So we've talked a bit about kind of the magic of being around these great people, mm-hmm. but you were there influencing and impacting and collaborating. So what, what were the moments of collaboration that stand out to you now or, or moments that you were particularly pleased with or excited by along the way? Um, so many, so many. It's really hard. It's it's really hard to pick one above the other. Like the lovely thing about being in a producing house is that like um, the curtain goes up at half seven every night. Like no matter what has yeah. transpired during the day. Yeah. Um, so every show had its own. Uh, every show kind of had its own. Um, rewards, I guess. Um, it was all. It always felt. Uh, special when it was a new play so things like cypress avenue um things like be for baby um it always felt really special because obviously new work being the thing that i'm most passionate about in my in my career to date that that always felt like such an accomplishment you know to have read something when it arrived into the office and seen it in 2D yes. to actually get to the point where it was meeting an audience. That's a fantastic way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any processes that were particularly long and drawn out or any that were kind of staggeringly or terrifyingly quick from, <laughs> from something arriving on your desk through to being on the stage? Um, both. I mean, we all know that like theatre is glacial. <laughs> yep. um, the, pace is, the pace is really slow. So I don't think anything ever happens as quickly as you want it to. Um, I think that, uh, particularly in a big organization, you know, because um, there's always so many stakeholders, like so many people to satisfy and so many people who need your support. And that never goes away, actually, no matter what organization you're in. I think that never goes away. Um, But I do think I would love to crack uh, 
I would love to crack the nut that is like how can theatre get a bit more nimble yes you know in the way that like uh, Kathleen Moran always talks about how uh, pop music is the ind- is the like chief indicator of social change yes because it takes like two hours to record the perfect pop song and so the things that are in the zeitgeist will be captured first in music mm. before anything else so I'd love to crack the nut of how do you get theatre to be a bit more to be a bit more nimble and a bit more responsive. Yeah, that's interesting because it was one of the things, you know, when the Fintan O'Toole's of the world kind of criticise Irish theatre for not responding as quickly to, you know, big tumultuous change, it always seemed to me that he was coming at it with the mindset of a journalist who is that immediate turnaround day-to-day stuff rather than, you know, the, the scope it can sometimes take to get a full, a fully-fledged theatre production on, on stage. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be interesting if we could do it. Yeah, but I think, uh, like, I do think, though, too, I do think, though, too, that, like, really sometimes those big social shifts they're just not what's exercising you as an artist yeah the things that exercise you as an artist can often like obviously everyone's different but it can often be like those eternal questions like those big personal philosophical questions um and so uh particularly things like the financial crisis Mm. and stuff like that there was i think there was a big sense among artists that like well we never had the The money to begin with so like things have actually been the same for me throughout this time and I don't want to write a play about banks yeah. I want I actually want to make work about the things that keep me up at night you yeah. know about the those kind of um primal inspirations um that those often come from within or from the atmosphere or rather than from the headlines you know talk to me then about the shift from the abbey to the fringe uh, how it came about and what you were most excited about, about in, a, in a change like that? Um, I had known for a long time that it was that new work was where I wanted to be um, and that's because I think that uh, at the beginning of a career or at the beginning of an idea that's where an encouraging word or the right piece of advice or a chance means it's make or break. Yeah. It means everything. Like, it's essential. It's the difference between giving up and, like, moving back to your mother's back bedroom or actually, like, continuing on yeah. a path. It makes such a big difference. And that's something you learn from uh, responding to unsolicited scripts. Is right. that even when you're saying, not this one, yeah. but keep writing. That that makes a difference to people. And so I have always been really excited about new ideas and new forms and... Uh, I guess all of the different ways that you can tell a story Um, and so that sort of forward thinking is what Fringe does best and I've always felt that Fringe is the agenda setting festival of new work in Ireland, that that's where people get their shot, that that's where um, kind of the most challenging, the most dynamic, um, the most vibrant work is getting a chance and so thinking about it as the epicentre of new work, it was an obvious place for me to want to be um and so i had i had had my eye on the program manager job for a while thinking i wonder what that's like you know and i want and thinking like i think that that would be a really good place to be and i think i could do that Mm. um and so uh when it came up i of course applied for it and was really lucky to get that chance to come here and work on it and it was everything that i thought it would be and more what 
specifically, I mean, because sometimes people hear terminology and go, well, hang on, well, what's a program manager and what's a... Oh, like, yeah. So, All job so, titles are made up. All of them. <laughs> Don't say it out loud. They'll find us out. <laughs> um, so what, what was either as before you went into it or as you found yourself there, what specifically was it about that particular role uh, that was working for you? Um, I think everywhere that I had ever worked, I felt like this is good, but I wish I could be doing more. Like I wish I could be getting to more projects. I right. wish I could be, uh, you know, I, I wish my remit was a bit broader so that I could be catching this and this and this. Um, and I got to Fringe and it's big enough. <laughs> like Fringe is a beast. You yeah. know, there's like 600 artists making work in the festival this year, more than 600 artists. That's amazing. And so to be across that many projects and to be able to support and champion that much work, I was like, okay, this this is my full wingspan. Yeah. Like this is as much as I can be doing. And that felt right. Um, but also it's just the absolute joy of being there at the beginning of the of the process of like reading a blurb in a fringe application and then getting to stand there on opening night nine months later yeah. um, is a fast forward of everything that's lovely about play development, yeah. you know, and about working in a literary department. Um, but it's also, there's a real sense of energy at Fringe in that every time, every time I have an artist meeting, every time you meet someone, you know that it's their passion project. Yeah. Like that's what we're in the business of here. Yeah. Um, and there's something incredibly nourishing about that. Um, and I guess the program manager job for me was a really brilliant opportunity to kind of intersect my skills as a producer and as a dramaturg because yeah. you're developing all of these ideas, but you're also like um, getting performing budgies from London to Dublin and picking them up at Dublin Port in the middle of the night. And That's an entirely normal way to make a living. I don't know what's wrong with that. Yes, exactly. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it was kind of an intersection of those two facets of my skills that I really enjoyed. Um, and just, I mean, this building is a brilliant place to work. Yeah. It is the centre of so much industry and possibility and laughter and it's a brilliant place to be in some ways does it hark back to the magic and the energy and the fervor of the time in new york where it is as diverse as it is the scope of the work the scale of the work is as diverse as it is the kind of disparate new voices coming through that that's does it harken back to those days a bit i think so i think so and in a um certainly with the because we're a multidisciplinary festival um it is definitely those seeds that were sown in joe's pub where it's cabaret and it's comedy and it's music and it's big nights out and it's yeah. like all of those things um, and the diversity of experiences that you're offering to audiences. So it's, yeah, it definitely feels like that. More eclectic. So the step up then to be in the boss, this yeah. is your house now. Um, <laughs> how does that feel and what is the shift for you as curator, artistic director, CEO? Like what, what, is, what, what does that shift feel like for you now? Well, I made a really... It's really different and I made a really conscious decision at the top to go in going okay what if this was year one don't think about this don't think about this as someone who knows what fringe is and has two festivals under their belt yes. already I really wanted to go in saying okay what if the Arts Council said Ruth McGowan found a fringe festival for 
Dublin City um, in 2018 and that's the approach that I wanted to take I was trying to pull up like I was you know like um, airplane terminology (laughs) like I was you know I was trying to zoom out and go okay how can I do this as if it's for the first time Um, and that's been a really useful thought experiment Um, I'm also really glad that I didn't have to do all the new job stuff of like figuring out all the many parts of the job that are totally new to me yeah with while having to do the new job stuff of like and okay cool where are the pens <laughs> like it's been lovely to do it with teammates that i know already yeah. with artists who i've worked with already um so that has been brilliant but i've tried really hard to make it new um as much as possible so given that we are now past any embargoes and we're allowed to talk about whatever we want to talk about how excited are you for this festival and are there particular moments or events or shows within it that are really exciting for you that you're really looking forward to yes i mean i couldn't be prouder of the program we put out the curatorial call out in january as usual the usual cycle um and I always think of that as uh, it's a provocation, not a prescription. Like the artists actually lead the way. They're the diviners, they're the seers, they're the people we're going to follow. And so we put the call out um, looking for antidotes. So um, our now like changed Ireland that we find ourselves in, we're kind of working through this righteous national to-do list. (laughs) And it felt like a good moment to say, okay, everybody's been through a lot and there's a lot more left to do, so what do we need? Um, and have the artists play apothecary and so they have come they were just so ready to take up the challenge so something that was really important to me was that um, I love it when fringe comes to you when you don't have to come to fringe so we're all over we're in the Liffey we're on the heads of statues we're in front of the GPO we're in City Hall we're in the corridors of power Um, so we've got 10 free shows lots of them are going to be like out in the streets we've got a piece of work Um, from uh, Chile called Questions Project Um, and that's a mobile interactive piece of sculpture that's going to move through the city for the whole 16 days and it's like imagine a huge grid with um, lettering like Scrabble tiles and the idea is that it crowdsources questions saying what do you want to ask Dublin so people get to publish their questions for the city so you're directly in conversation um, with the city that we call home and uh, so that's really exciting um, we've got a bunch of work that is like straight from the headlines so a bunch of work that's dealing with the housing crisis that's dealing with homelessness that's dealing with um, what it is to make a family in modern Ireland like building families and sustaining them so all of those things are on people's minds um, and then the other thing that we're doing is we're staking a claim for club culture as culture now this is interesting to me so we've got a program of parties and gigs um, and we are taking over a full shopfront on Dame Street for, as the festival club for a fortnight. Wow. So we're taking over Healy's um, as the festival club bar. And it's just to kind of a big underlying theme of the festival in general is to take up space in the city and make space for art in the city before we wake up one day and realize we're all just living in one big apart hotel. <laughs> um so that trying to make sure that there's space for creative spaces, but for nightclubs too, that like club culture is a big part of the fabric of Dublin. Um, and with so many kind of legendary spaces closing down in the last year or so, um, we're deciding to make our presence felt by having some big nights out. It feels like that's an important thing at the moment. Obviously, with my involvement with 
OTT Wrestling, the idea that the Tivoli is going to be gone for us, and we're now shopping around for any kind of a comparable venue, and it's almost impossible to find. And you see talk of, I mean, in terms of big hits from the Fringe, the recent Dublin Old School movie, yeah. already, even though it's just been released, to an awful lot of people, feels like it's almost this snapshot time capsule of a world of partying and clubbing in Dublin that is rapidly vanishing. Mm-hmm. And it feels that... Uh, apart from that whole younger generation that we just exported during the crash that now for those that stayed and kind of kept things going that the spaces for them to go and party and meet and congregate and make art are disappearing and there are brilliant independent club nights in dublin but what's happening is it's becoming harder and harder to find space to make art even not just the nightlife stuff Um, because there's like a web of licensing and permissions and legal venues and illegal venues and all those things to be managed there, which I'm sure was always difficult. Um, But uh, even in terms of the heart and soul of Fringe for years has been Fringe and kind of off-road venues. We love that sort of work. We specialise in that sort of work, like Lucy Smoke's Circus in the Trees in Phoenix Park, uh, Timmy Creed's show in uh, Handball Alley. Alley. (laughs) You know, that's the sort of experiences that Fringe really loves to champion. But it's becoming increasingly hard for artists to get their hands on any sort of a space. You know, everyone wants to be in Berlin. We're all looking for that warehouse venue that doesn't exist, you know. What are your ambitions for the festival this year, what would and what would make it feel like a success to you? What at the end, when the dust settles in September, before we all ramp up again to the theatre festival, uh, what will make you say, "Whew, okay, yeah, we pulled it off." Um, loads of things, <laughs> <laughs> loads of things. The festival's massive, so it's loads yeah. of things. Um, so the answer is always more than one thing. But first of all, is that for the artists that their ambitions and their ideas stay as big right up until the 23rd of September. Okay. That over the course of the summer that they don't get eroded by too many practicalities and too many people being pulled in too many directions. So it's about really, really trying to fiercely protect that space to make and space to create and get people to get in touch with the Fringe team who are extraordinary ninja miracle workers this is entirely true that they tap into all of those skills and all of and all of that experience so that we can champion them Mm. to make a piece of work that is going to be what they wanted it to be when they started yeah um so that's really important um i would love uh for us to be connecting with new audiences and that's about that's about people a lot of people are kind of the audience data would show that a lot of people have their first ever cultural experience at Fringe. Okay. Um, our audiences are really young. And uh, what I hope is that they will come to Fringe and it will be habit forming. Not just that they'll come, not just that they'll keep coming to Fringe once a year, but that when they see a Malaprop show in Fringe, that the next time Malaprop have a show, they'll go again and they'll become loyal followers um, of their work. So that's, so new audiences is important. And then I guess kind of, um, crack can crack be a legacy absolutely i think that spirit of joy and like that spirit of mischief um is important to me and that's something that i hope that we can spread a little of during the festival this year it feels like there's something magical in the juxtaposition of and coming together of that fervent rigor that you talk about while also having the jesus crack while you do it i think that's that's the key, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's like, you know, what makes you a festival and not a venue? Mm. Like, what's the gift of being a festival? And the gift of being a festival is you have to show up. Mm. It's 
16 days blinking you'll miss it you've got to put your coat on and get on the bus and leave the house and come or you'll have missed it forever yeah. um, and I think the way um, and a big part of that is that it's got to have a festival feel it's, you've got to be having a good time and you've got to want to come back and like the community that there is around Fringe staggers me mm. staggers me and it is again the romantic in me it's just it's extraordinary mm. all this coming together of people it is actually marcus costello will kill me for telling this story but uh so marcus costello who's our production manager here at fringe and this i think is his 16th festival and yeah, he that? is the miracle worker that i was talking about um you know and marcus always talks about the fact that like these are people's dreams that we're dealing with that people will um go without essential things that they need in their life in order to make this show you know mm. and it's the kind of purest expression of uh what i guess of like the drive to be an artist yeah. you know it's fantastic i love it i'm really excited about the festival this year i can't wait to go and check out so much of the work ruth thank you so much for coming on the podcast one more thing yes will you be a fringe judge this year Shots fired. This is a shoot, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, of course I will. Are you up for it? Absolutely. I'm we up can for talk it. about the time commitment and stuff like that, but I'd love you to do it because I think you've been involved in Fringe in every way for a long possible time. Possible as like an artist, as a director, as a writer, as a performer, as a dadager. As a dadager. Yes, that was an official term last year. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, <laughs> and so a judge, I think, is the is the one you've got left to tick off. Excellent. Um, I would be honoured to. Um, let, let's close on that. Bribes in a postcard to Bryce uh, <laughs> Towers. No, um, yeah, I'd be delighted to. Um, and, and thank you so much. And here's to a great festival. Oh, I'm totally honoured to be asked. Thanks very much. So there you have it, the brilliant Ruth McGowan and an exciting little ending to a chat there, one that I absolutely wasn't expecting. So there's uh, our first announcement for the day is that, yes, I will be joining the panel of judges for this year's Fringe Festival, something I'm really looking forward to. Uh, as you all know, I'm the biggest theatre fan in the world. Going to see a whole heap of shows in a short space of time is something that makes me very, very happy indeed. A couple of years ago, I did um, the next stage the with Dublin Theatre Festival, which was just spectacular. Going to see something like 25 shows in the space of two weeks and just flat out seeing a huge amount of work talking to other people about the work engaging with the work it was really brilliant and I'm really looking forward to getting the chance to do the same thing for the Fringe this year so my thanks to Ruth for door stopping me like that uh, delighted to be involved and so that brings us to another little announcement before we get out of here and this is an exciting one um, on Monday this final performance of The Good Father at Smock Alley that we keep talking about there will be a little bit of an event and Ashling Mooney as you may know has taken over Smock Alley from her time at the Abbey. She's now taken over Smock and is running the show there and Ashley Mooney has invited a number of people to come in to effectively be in residence in Smock uh, throughout 2019. Uh, one of those companies is Rex Ryan's new company Glass Mask. They're going to be in residency there at the boys school. Um, I think there's going to be a number of other people kind of working in children's work, in music and the big announcement is that Rise Productions is going to be company in residence for the main space 
in Smock for 2019. And I am over the moon about it. It's a massive opportunity and a platform for us to get out there, to keep making work that audiences want to see and putting it right in the heart of Dublin City Centre. I mean, the model for Rise for eight years now has really been to do a huge amount of national touring. We're really committed to taking work outside of Dublin and bringing it around the country because we feel that audiences outside of Dublin 1 and Dublin 2 deserve to be getting top quality theatre. And so it's really been a mission of ours. I mean, look, signs on it, this Smock Alley run of The Good Father is venue 25 for us on this tour of The Good Father. We are committed to touring cross-border all around the country. But to now have a home base right smack in Temple Bar, to have a home base in Dublin City Centre, a home base where we can experiment, we can try stuff out, we can rehearse, we can try all kinds of things and hopefully offer additional things just to a standard straight-up theatre show. So maybe that'll be live podcasts with in front of a, a live audience. Maybe it'll be workshop stuff. Maybe it'll be opportunities to develop work both for us and with collaborators that we're used to working with. It's a whole world of exciting times. I'm really enthused about it. I I think it's a massive opportunity and it's exactly where we need to be with Rise Productions for the next little while. I'm excited. 2019 is going to be a hell of a year. I hope you'll come and join us for the ride. And so, look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings-on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre, it's Ulysses. At the Gate, it's The Snapper, which is doing ridiculous business for them, as far as I know. I'm going in on Tuesday evening to catch it. At the Gaiety Theatre, they have the all-conquering River Dance. At the Borgosh Energy Theatre, it is Hairspray and that'll be followed by a little show called Wicked which as of this week will become the sixth longest running Broadway show in history and as you know it's connected to my special wife Adina Menzel so it's a show I have an awful lot of time for I'll be getting in to see that as well at the new theatre in Temple Bar it's Punt and that'll be followed by First Love by Samuel Beckett at Smock Alley Theatre it is your very last chance to see The Good Father we have a show tonight Friday at 8 tomorrow Saturday we have a 2.30 matinee and a night show at 8 obviously we've no show on Sunday and then the big finale will be Monday evening at 8 o'clock after we do the official launch in Smock of the big announcement of us being company in residence in the main space Monday's going to be a special night for, but for any of those shows do please come along and catch the show because you'll be kicking yourself if you don't it must finish this weekend and the reason it must finish is because my wife is making me junk the set because we've nowhere to store it so this really will be the last roll of the dice you have the last handful of shows now Friday night Saturday matinee Saturday night and Monday evening your last chance is to catch the good father don't be the one that misses out at the Viking Theatre in Clontarf it's Fred and Alice and that'll be followed by Mary and me and at Bewley's Cafe Theatre on Grafton Street it's Joxer Daily Esquire starring the phenomenal Phelan Drew and directed by none other than Carl Shields now if that's not enough to get you out of your house and go and buy yourself a ticket to a lunchtime show I don't know what else it's going to take at the Project Arts Centre Jesse Jones Tremble Tremble continues featuring Alwyn Fuere and heading south to the Everyman in Cork it's Killing Stella and that'll be followed up by The Lonesome West starring Port Marnock's own Gus McDonough and the very brilliant Amy McElhatton from The Lear uh, a couple of years back who was a, a phenomenal actress making big waves at the moment someone I'm a huge fan of delighted to see her getting that gig I look forward to heading out of Cork to see that out west at the Galway Town Hall it's the fall in Cantata and also Port Authority coming up and then up north to the Lyric in Belfast they have The Gruffalo's Child and Paperboy so that is us that is episode 36 in the books with all our wonderful announcements. We will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Bye.